Let's pray together. Father, there is such a longing in our hearts for the appearance of Christ the King. We are comforted by his title, Prince of Peace. The world has never known a ruler who could bring about the kind of political, social, cultural peace that the Bible promises in Jesus. How thankful we are that his reign of peace will not simply be the calm that might characterize a community for a moment or a certain beautiful setting like the coastline or a national park, but it is a peace that permeates our souls and the world that he will one day recreate. How we long for that. We long for the nations of the earth to come under the sweet and sovereign rule of this prince. We pray this morning that our hearts, which for many are full of turmoil and uncertainty, fearful and anxious, stirred in ways that seem beyond our capacity uh, to find calm and peace. Oh, Lord God, come to us and through the word that we will read together as we continue to set our hearts on it. Let this living word transform us, transform our thinking, transform our speaking, transform our living. We are thankful that you have not only given us your word, but you have sent your Holy Spirit to make his dwelling in us. We believe the word of Christ that it is to the advantage of his disciples that he has gone away, for in his absence the Spirit has come. O Holy Spirit, would you come to us today? Would you manifest yourself to us through the word, through the encouragement and comfort of fellow believers, through the touch uh, of your great sovereign care upon our hearts, and establish your peace within. Now illuminate our eyes that we may see the light of truth and awaken our wills that we may believe and obey all that you reveal to us and give us the strength to go from this assembly today to serve and bless. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We often refer to Christmas as a season of light, and as we approach the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere, at least, the days grow shorter and shorter, and for those of us who like the long days of summer, that's almost discouraging, isn't it? I don't like to see the sun dip behind the Ochre Mountains so early in the afternoon. I feel like, you know, there's still half my day yet to live, and now it's dark. I, for one, uh, love to see the displays of lights, though, that go up in the neighborhood, and uh, some are are just meticulously, if not elegantly, put together, right? And then we all have those neighbors who just seem to go get whatever's available and put it on whatever structures 
uh, are available to them in the yard. And uh, the, the name Griswold comes to mind, doesn't it? And I think most of our neighborhoods have at least one of those families or individuals who just seems to, you know, go a little crazy. I love it all. Uh, some of it's entertaining and some of it's amazing. And I suspect that many of you love the extra light, the seasonal light. I love seeing it all and uh, driving around and um, that makes the early darkness that comes upon us in these winter months uh, a little more manageable. It's quite remarkable to see. And that's the point though, isn't it? To see. We need light to see. Now in his gospel account, the apostle John takes up the theme of light uh, against darkness and it really appears all the way through and we have already set our hearts on the opening verses of chapter 1. If your Bible is available to you, please open it to John 1 and I hope that you will follow along as I read a few verses here in just a moment. Before I do though, John is introducing Jesus to us as the Word. Now, there's a lot that's packed into that, but one of the verses that Pastor Lloyd read a little bit ago was verse 9. Jesus is the true light which gives light to everyone. That light was coming into the world. And you have a sense as you read John's gospel that there is a, there's a, a spiritual darkness that has enveloped the world and the nations of the earth at this particular moment and Jesus as the word of God as the true light is penetrating and dispelling the darkness. But it's, it's not just an absence of physical light that Jesus wants to remedy. There's actually a spiritual darkness and it's of the worst kind for it was a darkness of the heart that had spread through the nations, through families, through in individual communities just like ours. And it brought a deadly confusion, in particular, about who the true God is, what he's like, how do you find him, how would you worship him, how would you enter into a relationship with him. And in those final years before the advent, there were all kinds of ideas and notions, all kinds of beliefs and worship systems about the gods, and I will use that plural because there would be differences of opinion, one group to another, as to the very nature of God, his existence, his attributes. And some believe that there were many, many gods. And so the Greeks and Romans in particular of that era into which Jesus was born had, and, and one of their structures was called the Pantheon, a physical temple where multiplied gods and, and the representative images or, or idols for those gods could be found and consequently worshipped. The long history of Egyptian gods and Canaanite gods. There were gods of the earth and gods of the sky, gods of the sea, gods of love and war, of seasons and crops, of all kinds of things. It was not only a pantheon, a physical structure that you could go to, spiritually speaking, it was a pantheon of confusion. It was a pantheon of darkness. It's easy to take light for granted until you don't have it. And then you can't see clearly. You know, you feel certain things there, or you may have a long-veiled memory, 
But the absence of light creates all kinds of confusion and fear and turmoil. So now I want to begin reading in verse 14. We read through verse 13 earlier, but listen to this and how John is, is continuing with the theme of, of Christ as the true light coming into the world, into a darkened world. And now he says, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he has come after me. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We're beginning a series today uh, that will take four parts, and Matt's going to preach two of the four messages, and and, uh, he'll be up to bat next week and the week after that. I'm going to take the first and fourth message, but it really centers on why Jesus came. We're even going to include in next week's Equip class and the week after that lessons on some of the powerful scriptures that tell us why Jesus came. Well, we're in one of those passages today, and uh, it, this, if, if I were to title this sermon, it would be Jesus came to reveal the invisible God. And there's more to it than just saying, oh, well, here's the fact. I, I really want you to see some things that develop in the scriptures here. And first of all, as we are looking at verse 14, it's, it's very simply stated that Jesus came to dwell with us. Now, this is a remarkable, a remarkable truth. The word became flesh. Now, remember, in the opening verses, John was was making the point that Jesus existed not only with God from all eternity, but as God. He's eternal. There's not a point somewhere in the way, way, way back where Jesus did not exist. He's an eternal being. But at this particular moment, the eternal word, the eternal God, the eternal Son becomes flesh. He wasn't flesh prior to this. He would always be flesh after this, but this marks quite a remarkable moment where the word becomes flesh. And then John says, and he dwelt among us. There are all kinds of devotional thoughts and commentaries that have been written on this and in its simplest but most profound terms, it, mean, it means simply that Jesus came to dwell among us as one who sets up his own, and this would be Old Testament allusion, his tabernacle among us, his residence. Comes to build a house right in our neighborhood. Now, the Old Testament is full of God's promises to dwell with his people. That would be a beautiful series to, to work through. For the sake of time, we, we won't go back to the Old Testament, but there are passages in Exodus and, and the prophets like Ezekiel who record that God himself said, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so there's this long expectation. When will God appear? When will God make his dwelling with us? Now, here's a question for us to consider. Who are the us? Certainly, John is writing from the first-person perspective as a disciple. I mean, he lived with Jesus for three years. 
think what's remarkable to me to consider this is that most of us in seeking to find a place of residency would, would look at the dollars that are available to us and the neighborhoods that have options in them and, and we would try to find the best location we could because after all, you know, the three most important words in any real estate transaction are what? Location, location, location. And it's very disheartening if you invest heavily in a particular home in a neighborhood and then you come to find out that all your neighbors are scoundrels and they're mean and they help themselves to your stuff. They think of it as long-term borrowing. You call it stealing. I mean, that'd be very, that'd be very disturbing to say, what have I done? Where have I located my, my residence? But Jesus actually made a choice not to enter the, the highest uh, economic bracket he could afford to enter at that particular point, but he actually came to the most humble of people made his dwelling, first of all, with a poor carpenter and his young wife in the middle of an obscure and even disreputable village called Nazareth, chose to dwell with fishermen like Peter and Andrew, and then two brothers, James and John, who apparently had a reputation for being hotheads because Jesus himself nicknames them as the sons of thunder. But he makes them his friends. He dwells with them. You see him in John's gospel celebrating at an at a, what was probably a very ordinary wedding in Cana, but apparently the groom must have been too poor to supply his guests with enough wine for the celebration, and it, it's the context in which Jesus performs his first miracle. These are some of the us that John refers to when he says he made his dwelling with us. Religious leaders like Nicodemus who knew they were part of a religious tradition and culture that was broken at its core. There's a Samaritan woman in the, in the very next chapter who'd been through five husbands and probably as a result of the failure of those marriages and the disillusionment of that, uh, of that sacred covenant, she's just living with a sixth man because it was to her advantage economically and socially to have some kind of, of male cover in that day and age. He made his dwelling with a superstitious invalid who for 38 years had waited and hoped for someone to take notice of his helplessness, to stop long enough to assist him into the healing waters of that pool that we know as Bethesda. He made his dwelling among those who, like the woman caught in adultery in John 8, was the prisoner of her lust. And if you read that story, you find it unfolds in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, a a holy week, one of the three high holy weeks for the people of Israel. And when she should have been devoting herself to celebrating God's miraculous deliverance of her people out of the slavery and bondage and idolatry of Egypt, she is prisoner to her lust. The man who was born blind, whose disability was judged by his larger community as a sign that either he had sinned or his parents, but somebody had made a mistake the blindness that afflicted him was not only a a physical disability to overcome, but it was a spiritual liability in the culture that he was a part of. The list goes on and on as to the kinds of people that Jesus made his dwelling with, but this is part of the, the beauty of the gospel. He came to make his dwelling with us. You see, if you think about it and you read the stories in the gospel, you realize that the people who are a part of that are really no different from people like you and me. People who, though given life by the creator, have been so deeply broken and flawed, some even destroyed socially because of sin. We are the us. And he made his dwelling 
with us. Now John goes on to say, we, again, as one of the hundreds of eyewitnesses, John writes, we have seen his glory. And he uses a term, that that word that's translated out of the the New Testament Greek into our present English language doesn't just mean like we, we glimpsed it, saw it as, you know, as if we're driving down the road and something catches our eye and we turn our attention. No, it has the idea of gazing upon something to the point of of discovery and and astonishment and awe begin to break over our souls. That means we're we're seeing not just with eyes that process the, the physical image or act in front of us, but we're processing what we see physically, but seeing all of the great significance loaded into it spiritually. And what does John say we saw? Well, we saw glory. Now, in the Old Testament, for a Jew, the glory of God was a really big deal. You'll, some of you will recall from readings in Exodus and the early books of the Bible, when, when God had instructed Moses to build the tabernacle and it was finally completed, what was the visible manifestation that God was in the tent? The Shekinah glory, right? And they saw uh, this, this glorious cloud, this manifestation. Moses himself had asked to see the glory of God. And God said, you can't actually see it full on, can you? And so what did God tell him? I'm going to pass by. And you're basically going to see the, the backside. And as God passed by him, he declared certain of his attributes to Moses, revealed them, because even that was part of his glory, When Ezekiel saw the glory of God, do any of you remember how he described the visible glory of God? It was like a, anybody got this? A rainbow. Ezekiel sees the glory of God. It's like this visible rainbow-like display of the the many perfections of God. So these are some of the, the accounts that are recorded in the Old Testament. But what John is describing is not a bright cloud or visible light that surrounds a heavenly throne, as Ezekiel described. But he goes on in the next phrase to really tell us what's at the core of this glory. And he says it's the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And that term, only begotten, um, that, that deserves a whole sermon, but it's not today. It, it simply means he's the one and only. There's no other one like Jesus. Though we sometimes refer to ourselves as the sons of God, and we are, but that's by redemption and adoption. That's not in the same way that Jesus is the one-of-a-kind son of God but glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And and so hold on, because what John is about to do is to get really specific here at this moment. And then the next phrase says, full of grace and truth. If if I use the expression Roy G. Biv, any of you know him? Yeah, some of you laughed, right? Because it's not actually a guy, is it? Roy might lead you to think we're talking about a guy. Now, what is Roy G. Biff? Yeah, exactly. It's an anacronym. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. The, the colors of the rainbow. And if you ever had an art class, your art teacher probably introduced you to Roy G. Biff. Maybe you're someone like, yeah, I missed it on a test one time. Light is a remarkable entity. 
and whether it be uh, passing through a, a prism or even on a rainy afternoon when the sun is lower in the sky. And I, that, that was one of the great blessings of moving to the west. I feel like we have many more rainbows here than we did back east where I grew up. But it takes, it takes light and breaks it into these different color bands. And it's always beautiful to behold. People stop and take pictures and comment on it when, when it appears. And I, for a moment, I want you to think with me and even tie it back to what I said a moment ago about God's glory being described by Ezekiel as a rainbow-like display of as many perfections. Seven colors that we typically think of with our rainbow. But if God's many, many attributes each took a color, how many colors would there be in that rainbow? Well, the answer is an infinite number because he himself is infinite, and so his attributes or his perfections are also beyond numbering. It's a staggering concept, really, when you think about it, but what I, what I, what I want you to see through this little illustration, and I hope is helpful, let's, let's say that we, we look at Roy G. Biv or an actual rainbow on the screen, but we say, you know, today we want to talk about the, the color band indigo, and then we begin to explore indigo. You see, we're taking one color out of the larger band of colors and focusing on that. And so when John writes that Jesus comes full of grace and truth, it's as if he's taking two particular color bands out of the infinite rainbow-like display of God's many perfections and says, for the next few chapters that I'm writing, I want to show you the glory of God with respect to grace and truth. There are many perfections of God that we could talk about, many aspects of his glory that we could set our hearts on, but the two bands, as it were, that John is going to focus on throughout the entire gospel, but even here in this portion before us, are grace and truth. Now, you can see I've given just very basic definitions. Grace is an undeserved favor that will cause joy or pleasure. And then truth is and I put it in quotations because I'm, I'm quoting another commentator that I thought that, that's a really good way to put it, the unveiled reality. And again, just back up again to the broader context that I began with, it's a world of darkness, all kinds of confusion about the nature of God, his existence, his being, how he works, how he interacts with people like you and me. Is, is he far? Is he near? Where is he? All kinds of confusion about God. But now he himself enters the world in human flesh. And John says that when he comes and sets up his tent in our neighborhood, builds a house right in the middle of all kinds of imperfect, broken, crazy people, makes them his friends, makes them his followers, makes them his disciples, he reveals some spectacular truth about the God who made them. And the two beautiful colors of God's glory that begin to emerge most vividly in this context of darkness and confusion are grace and truth. Truth, first of all, that actually answers a lot of the questions and should clear the confusion. And grace, because when you really listen to God's truth, not only about who he is, but about 
who you are and how sin really has wrecked you and your family and your neighborhood and your nation and this world far more than we want to admit, you need grace. You don't need grace from another person, although that's nice when it comes. You need divine favor. You need God himself to step into your mess and rescue you. And that's exactly what Jesus does. John's point in this chapter and in his entire gospel is that by his life in the flesh, Jesus reveals the glory of God and he ministers the glory of God to those who need it most. There is no light for humanity apart from God's grace and truth. The painful, debilitating truth is that death and disease and everything in its train has entered this world as a result of our sin. Your sin, my sin, the sin of generations preceding us. And we all deserve to die, both a physical death and a spiritual death because of our sin. And the gripping truth is that we do not have power to rescue ourselves or to illuminate the darkness that we, by our sin, have actually created. It's not within us. We are in need of a favor, a favor of divine proportions. And the the favor that we need is, is not even just a favor or grace of God that would make up the gap between our best efforts and what's required of us. We're in need of divine grace that really does supply everything. So it is a grace when God enters your world and illuminates your sin. It's always the starting point. When he, when he unveils it, unmasks it, it's terrifying when it happens. Many of you have been there. All of us are there in one sense. But then just as quickly, and you see this in the life and work of Jesus, he comes with grace to clear. Grace that forgives the shameful record of our sins. Grace that restores and makes whole. Grace that gifts us with a perfect record of righteousness in order that we would have hope of eternal life. No wonder John writes in the way that he does. And I mean, the the opening of John's gospel really is epic. Enter the glorious Jesus, full of the truth that in all honesty, we're terrified to face, but also the grace that we all desperately need. Jesus is God's grace and truth. Now, the next thing that uh, John tells us, look at the text with me, from his fullness we have received. That is, out of the fullness of all that God is, and in particular, out of the fullness of that grace and truth, the the us that he came to dwell with are gonna receive something because all, all have received it. And then he says, it's grace upon grace. And, and you can read John's gospel in this way. It's just one wave of God's grace after another. One individual, one group, one family, uh, one, uh, one conversation with disciples. It's just wave after wave of grace. So yeah, the truth would terrify us that we're sinful and we're in this darkness because of our own doing and there's no escape out of our own effort or works, but here Jesus is full of grace. 
and it's grace upon grace. Now, Jesus came finally to reveal the invisible God. He is God's personal revelation. John says, plainly, no one has ever seen God. That's consistent with the Old Testament record. You can go back to passages like Exodus 33.20. You can see it in the New Testament as Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy. And you'll read things that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. And, and the Lord is not talking out of both sides of his mouth when he says, you can't see me, but I'm going to show myself to you. Now, there's a particular way that he does that. No one has ever seen God. As one author writes, he's invisible, beyond human sight, and so beyond human apprehension, for no one has seen or can see him. We can come to know him only insofar as he has been pleased to make himself known. Otherwise, he is wholly beyond us. It's as if the light would stay off unless the Lord entered the room and pulled the switch and illuminated the place. But that's exactly what John is getting to, right? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, let me pause for this just a moment, and now this, this is another occurrence of that little term that we translate the only begotten Son of God in some places or the only God, the one of a kind, the unique and only Son, we could say. And this Son, look at, look at where he locates him in eternity past, who is at the Father's side, Some of the older English versions use the phrase, who is in the bosom of the Father. Picture this. The Son dwelling in such close union and communion with the Father that he's right in his side, next to his heart. No one else has enjoyed this place of privilege. Jesus really is greater than Moses and Isaiah, greater than David and Solomon. There's no one else who can lay claim to such a position of of personal relationship of intimacy and privilege what grace that this one should leave the father's side and come to us but here's the purpose and and this is a climactic moment in the opening chapter this one-of-a-kind son who is at the father's side he has made the invisible god known god didn't want you and me to remain in darkness God didn't want us to pool our ignorance as to his nature, his work, his attributes, his character, but in concert with the Son and the Spirit, laid out this remarkable plan. We refer to it as the incarnation, but it's with a view of making him known. It's a fairly comprehensive idea loaded into this little phrase, make him known. It's not just a a casual introduction as if God the Son would enter the world and say, could I introduce you to God the Father? God the Father, meet my friends. That would be one way to make someone known. No, the the idea here, it's actually the same term from which uh, we get our concept of exegetical preaching. Now that's a big, you know, 50 cent word. Exegetical preaching and teaching is what we're committed here to do. That means we believe that the word of God is the the God-breathed, authoritative, life-giving word, and he's, he's actually said what he really means, and if we will give our hearts to it, to study it, to learn it, uh, the, we, and, and, and draw the meaning right out of the text. We don't impose meaning on God's word. Uh, we don't allegorize it, except in those places where he's talking in allegory and using uh, a genre like that. But, but we believe that, that the true meaning is there. It just needs to be brought out of the text. And that's the same concept that 
John is using here to tell us what Jesus did. There's truth about God that needs to be drawn out, and the best way for us to know it is to know Jesus. That's why if you read the opening lines of Hebrews, it, it says somewhat dramatically and epically, God who at sundry times and in many different ways spoke to us in times past. And, and he makes reference to the prophets and dreams and visions and all these. But then the writer of Hebrews says, but in these last days has spoken to us in his son. There's no greater revelation than Jesus himself. And that's the point that John is getting to. Here is this invisible God, unknowable to us. We in our blindness, how could you bring a perfect being like him together with imperfect, handicapped people like us? And the answer is, in Jesus. And he makes him known. No greater revelation than this one. God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately, one author writes, in a real historical man, the word became flesh. God became man. And the point is simply this, to know the incarnate Christ is to know the invisible God. And so we sing with wonder and awe, as we did just a few minutes ago, veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See, it's like an invitation. See the Godhead. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased, we're talking about him, pleased with, pleased as man, with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. You'd think that, that Charles Wesley, before he wrote that great Christmas carol, might have been meditating on John 1, and that would be a really good conclusion to reach. So what Andrew said earlier about listening and, and thinking through the lyrics of these familiar Christmas carols, so many of them are loaded with rich Truth straight out of God's word. So the invisible God sends his one-of-a-kind son into the world, not just to make an appearance, but to make his dwelling with us. The gospel is written that we might know God through Jesus Christ, and the invisible God wants you and me to see him and know him in the revelation that is Jesus Christ. Now, real quickly, in conclusion, you say, that's great, that seems like real truth, but that, that's the introduction to this gospel. So here's what you do with it. Here's what you do with this profound truth that God entered the world as the human flesh that you and I are, yet he without sin. He came with the express purpose that we would know the living God, and the stories that John includes from that time forward are intended to be for our use so that as we read and see Jesus interacting with characters from all walks of life and all kinds of needs, all kinds of problems and failures and sin issues that we're supposed to say, uh, first of all, I relate to that guy. And if you read the story of Nicodemus, who'd grown up in a religious context, was one of the most outstanding teachers in all of Israel, yet he was confused on some things concerning the gospel. There are some of you who will read that story and go, I relate to that. I've devoted my life to studying the Bible. So much I don't understand. I wonder how God feels and thinks about me. You know how you answer that question? You listen to Jesus interact with Nicodemus. And he speaks the truth to him, doesn't he? Are you the teacher in Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Ow, that, that must have stung Nicodemus a little bit. But it, that truth is what sets up Nicodemus for grace. And the grace is this, Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
And you know, if you read all the way to the end, you find out Nicodemus seems to have put his faith in Jesus Christ and repented of his religiousness. He's converted. You see, that's, that's God making his dwelling with broken religious people. Then you read in the next chapter, Jesus makes a point to go to a well outside of a Samaritan town. A, a woman comes, and I described her earlier. She's had five husbands. She's now living with a guy. Jewish men don't talk to women like her, but Jesus begins to engage with her. And then he speaks truth into her soul that touches a really sore spot and says very plainly and simply, go call your husband. Ooh, which one? That hurts. That's truth that illuminates the true need of her soul, doesn't it? But then what does he do? He turns it and says, you know, if you really knew who I am, you'd ask me for a drink of water and I'd give you something that would make you never thirst again. And she says, give me that water. She's thinking in literal terms, right? But we know that Jesus isn't. And so as that conversation continues to unfold and he exposes her heart for who she is, he also reveals himself because she does have faith in a coming Messiah. It's a skewed version of God and a skewed form of worship as we know from history and even a little bit in scripture that the Samaritans weren't worshiping accurately. But at that moment, he says to her, the Messiah you're looking for, I am he. That's grace. There are scores of stories here, and you come to the end of John's gospel, and even says, there's a lot more that I could have written, but these are given that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the sent one, and that believing you might have life in his name. You see, Jesus came to reveal the invisible God. He came to illuminate our darkness. He came to deal with our sin. He came to die the death we should have died. He came to rescue us. Do you know him? Do you know him? Is this your God? Let's bow in prayer, please. Oh, Father, would you give us grace to believe all that Jesus shows us about your very nature, your character, your work? Would you illuminate our darkness? There's not one person here who has perfect understanding. And if you leave us to ourselves, we will continue to pool our ignorance and reach false conclusions and even destructive conclusions. How many sincere religious worshipers there were in the day Christ entered this world from the Roman and Greek civilizations who really sincerely believed that their pantheon was accurate to the old and ancient forms of worship in, in places like Egypt and Canaan, Mesopotamia, even, even in Israel. But you came, Lord Jesus, that ordinary people like us would know and see and believe the living God. Illuminate the darkness in our souls, in our minds, and give us faith to believe you're full of the grace and truth of God. So minister that grace and truth to us right here, right now. As your heads are bowed and you remain in a spirit of prayer here for just another moment, there may be questions that you have formed as we've studied through this passage of scripture and if it would serve you, for us to have a follow-up conversation personally, I'd, I'd like to extend that invitation to you. And it may not be convenient for you today, but perhaps in the coming week we could find a time to talk further. 
I certainly don't have all answers, but there are some beautiful truths that God has made known that have changed my life and the lives of many others here, and it would be my joy to explore your questions and seek God's answers because they are in his word. So could we just make a little agreement that after the service we'll, we'll talk? And maybe you could say, Danny, when could we get together? And we'll compare our calendars and we'll find a time to do that. Jesus entered the world for you. For you. Do you know him? Father, would you seal to our hearts now the words of truth that are designed to give us light, to bring us out of darkness, to free us from the slavery of our false notions of God, of religion, of the way of eternal life, and to set us on a path of truth and to experience a fullness of grace that we would not know apart from Jesus. So seal that to our hearts now. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.